What's up, everybody? Welcome to Good Wolf Radio. It's Jerry Scarlato. Today, we're going to finish up our top 10 exercises from the book, The Expectation Effect by David Robson. A great book, fantastic read, um, really will open your eyes on how the brain impacts your life and your outcomes in so many different ways. Last time, we talked about ideas one through five. I'll encourage you to go back and check that episode out. We talked about the placebo effect, the nocebo effect, how uh, expectations affect your exercise outcomes. So much stuff that we talked about in the last episode. I encourage you to go back and look at that. This time, we will carry forward some conversation about health. We'll talk about nutrition here in a little bit. We'll talk about how exercise impacts your health span and your lifespan, and so much more. Before we get to that, make sure that you are jumping into the Good Wolf community on Facebook, our private free Facebook group help uh, to help you improve your life, to help you improve your lifestyle, and to help you improve your lifestyle behaviors. Because there's so many, so much misinformation out there, there is so much that we need clarification on. What we're striving to do is help bring clarification to those questions, and you can go that, and you can do that for free. All you have to do is go find the Goodwill community, click join, and jump in. We are currently finishing up our 21-day challenge, Slim for Summer, um, you can go back and see all of those posts that have gone on for the last, the previous 14 or so days before this episode. We will have more challenges in the future, so excited about those, but we will have plenty of ongoing great content in there in the meantime. So go in, join that community, be surrounded by a bunch of people just like you who are trying to gain clarification on what it means to optimize health and fitness. For now, let's talk more about the expectation diet. That is big idea number six, the expectation diet. Chapter six tells us that our expectations of food mean a lot on many different fronts, on many different fronts. Some of the things that we'll talk about is how quantity expectations mean a lot. The words that we use mean a lot. The quality expectations mean a lot how you think in general, the packaging means a lot. So basically, anything about food and what you believe about it will impact not only your health outcomes, but also the nutrients that you absorb from the food and how much energy you get from the food. So there are a lot of things that will impact your nutrition intake by the end of this conversation. First of all, portion perception. How much you think is in a food matters. It matters to your hunger. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think my voice just cracked. No, I'm not going through puberty. I will be 39 in a couple of months. So uh, I don't know where that came from. Anyway, one study that he references in here is people who are shown egg portions of their upcoming omelet. Some people were shown fewer eggs and were given a bigger omelet. Some, we pull, some people were shown more eggs and were given the same size omelet. I don't remember. I have it in here in front of me, but I'm not going to read it. Some people were shown, I think, two eggs and they were given a three-egg egg omelet. Some people were shown four eggs and they were given a three-egg omelet. Uh, the people that were shown two eggs and ate a three-egg three omelet thought that they weren't that full. They thought that they were still pretty hungry. People who were shown four eggs and were given a three-egg omelet, thought that they were much fuller than they expected. 
In other words, what they thought they were eating and what they were actually eating were two different things, and their hunger showed that. If they thought they were having just two eggs, even though it was three eggs, they were not as full. They were not as satiated. Whereas if they thought they were having four eggs, but they were having three eggs, they thought that they were uh, much fuller than what a normal three-egg omelet might actually fill them. So the quantity in which is in something matters. So, and that's a big reason why I believe cooking your food is very important because when it comes to the frankenfoods that we eat nowadays, we have no clue like how much of those ingredients that are on that box are actually in there. All we can see is the ingredient list. Yes, we generally know from top to bottom, the ones at the top, there are more of those. The ones at the bottom, there are less of those. So we know that much, but how much is in one given cracker or one given chip or one given whatever, we have no stinking clue. And knowing that is important because whenever you make something and you can see what it is and you can feel what it is and you know how much went into the actual meal, then your perception of that is important. And you, you can actually understand that it's, it's a filling meal, whereas potentially the same amount of calories are in a handful of chips, but your perception of that is not as much because you just don't know. It's just a bunch, handful of chips as far as you're concerned. So the quantity... Uh, means a lot. The quantity means a lot. The words that are given to a meal or a food or on a box mean a lot as well. If a meal is described as healthy, for instance, you are much less likely to become full by it. Whereas if a meal is labeled as hearty, then you are much more likely to feel satisfied and be satiated by it. It can be the same exact meal. It can be the same exact thing, same exact ingredients, everything exact same. But if it's labeled as healthy, you may not feel as, as full, whereas if it's labeled as hearty, then you will feel much fuller. Just the names that are put on it will make you feel differently about it. The quality of the food matters. The quality of the food matters. So let me see. This study was showed that the results were astonishing. On average, the participants absorbed 70% more iron when the meal was presented in its traditional form, aka whole form, compared to the homogenized pastes. So what they did in the study was it was Thai, uh, a Thai vegetable curry that they had created from all these vegetables. So some people were actually just given the vegetables, the whole food vegetables. Some people were given the homogenized version, the curry version that they had made into a paste, if you will. Yeah, doesn't sound very good. But nonetheless, uh, the people who w had eaten the whole food version, the actual veggies themselves, they absorbed 70% more iron from the meal. Same exact thing, just in a different form, and they absorbed 70% more iron because they realized the quality of it. They could see 
that it was vegetables. They felt like they were eating something healthy. They felt like they were eating something good for them. And so, magically, their body utilized more of it. Now, of course, digestion plays a big part in this. But generally speaking, the more you process a food, the more easily it's digested. So, really, it should be the opposite whenever we're talking about a whole food versus a paste. Your body should process the paste much faster and much more easily, whereas the whole food, your body should, your body takes longer to process whole foods. It breaks more of the whole foods down in the digestion process. Therefore, it can't utilize as much of it. So really, it shouldn't be this way. But because we see the whole food, because we see the vegetables, because we feel like they're healthy for us, because we feel like they're filled with nutrients, we tend to absorb more of the nutrients from them. So quantity matters. The words that we use to describe the food matter. The quality matters. Many, many things matter when it comes to our food. Uh, last but not least, how you think about food matters. So one study that he references in here gave people questions and asked them to rate them on a scale of one to five. One is strongly disagree. Five is strongly agree. Here's a couple of the questions. There is usually a trade-off between healthiness and tastiness of food. There is no way to make food healthier without sacrificing taste. Things that are good for me rarely taste good. So, if you tend to strongly agree with these kinds of statements, you are less likely, number one, to actually eat healthy foods. Because if you don't believe that healthy foods can taste healthy, then why would you want to eat them? If you don't believe that you can make healthy foods taste healthier or taste, uh, taste better, why would you eat them? But you also tend to utilize less of the nutrients, like we saw before. If you don't believe that is helpful for you, your body will respond accordingly and will not utilize as much of the food. So what you believe matters. What you believe about healthy food matters. The, the truth of the matter is, the very truth of the matter is, our taste buds have been hijacked by big food companies. They have been hijacked. They literally manipulate food to the extent that they make that they make it fit the bliss point that they're after. The bliss point is literally a thing in big food where they're trying to match the point at which they can make thing make something sweet enough but not too sweet, salty enough but not too salty, fatty enough but not too fatty, to the point where it's addicting. And so they do that, and so we eat it, and so we eat more of it. But Real food is not like that. Whenever you have real food, it is very flavorful, very tasty, very delicious. If you, yeah, you got to season it. You got to put something on it to an extent. But because our palate is hijacked, because we have adapted our taste buds to this Franken food that is not real, it's not, there's, there's no modicum of actual foodness to it. Because of that, we believe that, quote, healthy food is not tasty. Whereas if we just changed our belief about that, took time to actually adjust to the food that we know that, that we should have, then we would be able to make the changes that we need to make.
So that is how the expectation diet can impact your nutrition. If you change, if you understand what is in your food that you're eating by making it, it'll change your appreciation for the food. If you eat whole food and you appreciate the quality of the food, you will utilize more of the nutrients. If you think of food as hearty and fulfilling, it will be hearty and fulfilling even if it's a little salad. Like people look at salads and they go, well, it's not very filling for me because it's healthy. Well, maybe if you start to think about how fulfilling it is and how hearty it is and how health, you know, useful it is for your body, might be a little more filling for you. Um, and then if you believe that healthy foods are whatever, bland and boring, number one, you're going to be less likely to actually follow it through. Number two, your body's not going to utilize as much of it and therefore you're not going to get as much out of it. So change your beliefs. That's that. Idea number seven is rule number one, don't sweat the small stuff. Rule number two, it is all small stuff. So chapter seven in the expectation effect is about stress and how stress impacts the body. Of course, stress is a very popular topic nowadays. Stress, chronic stress has a huge impact on health and our mindset about stress also has a huge impact on our health as well. And he starts to show that through, of course, a study. A study by the name uh, from a guy named Jeremy Jameson. Jeremy noticed that athletes tended to perform just fine, even though they, before a game, felt, quote, anxious. They use that anxiety or that anxiousness as energy to help them perform better in the game. But those same people would then go in and take a test and feel anxious and perform poorly on the test. So the way that they used their anxiety, he deduced, impacted the result. So in order to show how that might be the case, He took 60 students that were taking the GRE, and he gave them a bit of information. Uh, Half of them were given no information. The other half were given the following information. People think that feeling anxious while taking a standardized test will make them do poorly on the test. However, recent research suggests that arousal doesn't hurt performance on these tests, and can even help performance. People who feel anxious during a test might actually do better. This means that you shouldn't feel concerned if you do feel anxious while taking today's GRE test. If you find yourself feeling anxious, simply remind yourself that your arousal could be helping you do well. So just a couple of simple sentences on how anxiety could potentially be helpful and how research has shown that Anxiety can actually help you on test taking. And because of that, the average score of the control group, the people who were not giving this information, was 706, whereas the average score of the people who were given this information was 770. So just believing that stress is something that is helpful for you, going into a test, a performance, 
a big project that you're completing, a big presentation that you're doing can help with managing of the stress by taking it and utilizing it as energy, by taking it and using it to help you improve yourself instead of bring yourself down. Because what we do whenever we feel stress in those kinds of situations is we convince ourselves that we're broken. Well, I shouldn't feel stressed if I'm going to do this. I should feel whatever, relaxed. And that's just not true. Everybody, most all professional players, professional sports players will tell you before every game they feel anxious and stressed. Some higher, some lower, but they'll all tell you that they feel that way. Performers will tell you the same thing. Every time they go out for, for a performance, whether that's in a play, whether that's singing, whatever, they feel stressed. The question is, what do they think that that stress is doing for them? Do they think that that stress is there to help them? Or do they believe that that stress is there and that they're bad and that it's going to hinder them? So the way that you believe about it, the way that you, yes, the way you believe about it is going to affect what happens to you uh, moving forward. That's truth about stress in general. Your mindset about stress will impact whether you have positive outcomes, health outcomes, or negative outcomes from stress. If you believe that stress in general, that overall life stress in general is a negative thing, you will have negative outcomes from it. Whereas if you believe that stress is a usual thing in life, stress is something that all of us deal with, and it's something that can give you energy, and it's something that can bring you fulfillment, which is very true because we aren't fulfilled by laying around and doing nothing. We are fulfilled by doing things that challenge us. Then it can bring you very positive health outcomes. Another way that ruminating and stressing out impacts our health is through sleep. So in the section about sleep, he talks about people with insomnia and how a lot of people with insomnia actually have no like diagnosable issue. They just are having trouble sleeping. What happens for a lot of them is that before they even get into bed, they're already thinking about how they might have trouble sleeping. And then once they get into bed, they're thinking about how they're having trouble sleeping and how annoying it is and how they just want to be asleep and so on and so forth. So they start ruminating and thinking and so on and so forth. And the wheels are spinning. And that worry, that thinking about sleep is just diving them deeper into insomnia, diving them deeper into not sleeping and having a huge impact on not only their sleep, but then their long-term health. If you have not had insomnia, but you have had trouble sleeping and you have been in that experience where you lay down in bed and you're having trouble falling asleep and you're going, oh, why can't I fall asleep? What's going on? What am I thinking about? What's, what am I doing? what's going on in my head and is, and it's just bugging you that you can't sleep. That's a big reason why you can't sleep is because you're sitting and ruminating about it. So your belief about being able to fall asleep will impact, have a big impact on whether or not you can do that. Instead of sitting there and ruminating, just getting up and going and doing something else or reading a book or doing something in the meantime, and trying to go back to sleep again at a later time may be helpful, may help you get five hours of quality sleep instead of five hours of very junky sleep because all you did was ruminate about how little sleep you're going to get. 
So remember that stress can be both helpful and harmful. Helpful stress has a name, um, and we call it U-stress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S. U-stress is the energizing kind of stress. It is whenever you feel stress, you take that and you put it into action. You put it into life. You put it into you instead of trying to block it out of you, instead of trying to tear it away from you. It's going to be there. We're going to have stress. There's no way in the world that we, none of like, and yes, of course, in certain, like reducing your psychological stress is definitely important, but to be totally honest, for most of us, reducing psychological stress just means changing what we think about stress. It means changing what we think is stressful also, because most of what we think is stressful is made up by our minds. So shifting to a more you stress and empowerment of stress mindset is going to help benefit you in the long run. Cool. That brings us to idea number eight. Idea number eight. You are not your will. You are not your will. So uh, just last week or the week before we talked about willpower. And this chapter is about the same exact thing, about willpower. He talks in depth about Roy Baumeister and his, I, his theory on ego depletion, which we talked about in uh, whenever we talked about willpower a couple weeks ago. Uh, ego depletion basically is what happens through the course of a day whenever you are making decisions and you're having to overcome obstacles and you're having to, you know, maintain self-control. Uh, over time, you, you get tired. And when you get tired, at the end of the day, you feel like you have no control. So that's when you fall off the bandwagon and you start, whatever, drinking more alcohol or you start binge watching Netflix or you start chomping on your favorite snack. That's ego depletion. Ego depletion is, is partly real. It's partly real. But ego depletion is only so real as you believe it to be, as you believe it to be. Uh, like we talked about last time, your belief about what willpower is dictates how much willpower you have. He references a lot of research from Veronica Job, who is at the University of Vienna in Austria. A lot of research she's done on willpower and mindset. And the statement that basically brings it all together is, uh, Job's results seemed to show that the consequences of ego depletion are real, but only if you believe it to be. Only if you believe it to be. So one of the studies he goes into, uh, here's a quote from that. Through nothing more than a nudge toward one belief or another, Job had strengthened or weakened their willpower. Indeed, the people who had been primed with the non-limited views actually performed better if they had done the so-called depleting test 
than if they had exerted themselves before the Stroop test. So these people were broken into a group and they were told either that willpower is limiting or that willpower is non-limited. And the people who had a non-limited view of willpower performed better on the test. They did not get held back by their, quote, energy. They did not, they were not limited by, you know, what they thought was their willpower and their depletion of willpower. So this depletion effect is very real. It is very much something that is all in your mind. The way that that happens is glucose consumption. Like we talked about when we did talk about willpower, ego depletion is really glucose depletion. Your brain, your brain is run by glucose. That's where it gets its energy. And essentially what's happening is if you feel like willpower is limiting, if you feel like it's limiting, then the brain is not letting glucose be released. So it, because it's thinking that it's going to have to hang on to it for later use, your body has an abundance of glucose. There's all kinds of glucose for your body to utilize, but because you believe that it is limiting your, your brain is literally not utilizing it. It's not producing the energy. So it is causing you to have less energy and less willpower. Whereas if you believe that willpower is unlimited, if you believe that there is no limit to your ability to stop yourself from doing stupid things, your brain will then release glucose and you will probably not run out of energy because we all eat and we all eat carbohydrates and we all replenish our glucose levels. And it's probably, it's unlikely that you're going to actually run low on glucose. So your brain's actually releasing glucose at a normal rate and giving you the energy that you need to stop yourself from doing stupid things whenever you try, whenever you start thinking about doing stupid things. So that's, I'm not going to dive any deeper into willpower because we did a couple of episodes on it, but just remember that willpower is something that we can talk ourselves into having or not have, and it's totally up to you. It's totally up to you. All right, let's move on to idea number nine. Idea number nine is the instant brain boost. Chapter nine is about untapped genius. It is about how you are potentially holding your knowledge ability and your wisdom ability back by what you believe about yourself or what you're told to believe about yourself. And in the beginning, he references a study done by Cyrus Ferrugi of George Mason University. In the study, they recruited a bunch of students to come to a brain training experiment where they were going to be taught about the brain and how they can be smarter, basically. Half of the students were given a pamphlet that stated, Brain Training and Cognitive Enhancement. Numerous studies have shown that Working memory training can influence or can increase fluid intelligence. Participate in a study today. The other half of the students were given a pamphlet stating, email today and participate in a study. Need credits? Sign up for a study today and earn up to five credits. Participate in a study today. So 
the students who came in believing that the study, that the experiment was brain training and cognitive, cognitive enhancement, and they were told about the studies that shown that working memory training can increase fluid intelligence, their IQ increased by 5 to 10 points. Their IQ increased by 5 to 10 points from one test to the next. That's one test one day and a test the next day. The other students who were just given a pamphlet that said, hey, email us if you want to come do the study, their IQ didn't increase. So simply by telling somebody that this experience is going to improve your ability to think better, your working memory, it's going to improve your knowledge, it's going to improve your smartness, led them to be smarter. Just priming them to believe that an experience was going to help them get smarter, led them to be smarter. Whereas the other group, they went to the same thing, they saw the same information, they did the same study, but they didn't did not end up improving in any way. So if you're reading a book, if you're watching a video, if you're, goodness forbid, scrolling through Facebook to actually get some positive content out of it, what are you thinking that it's doing for you? If you're using it mindlessly and you're using it to just pass the time, then that's what's going to happen and it'll probably make you dumber. However, if you're using it in such a way and you believe that you're using it in such a way that it's going to make you smarter, then it's a good chance that it will make you smarter. One of the quotes out of this chapter that I greatly appreciated is, if you consider yourself to be a relatively slow-witted and in or in original unoriginal thinker, then your anxieties about your abilities will be cluttering uh, will be cluttering that workspace whenever you are required to practice them. Let me try that statement again. Uh, if you consider yourself to be a relatively slow-witted and unoriginal thinker, then your anxieties about your abilities will clutter that workspace whenever you are required to practice them. So the workspace that he's talking about is workspace in your mind. And whenever you are confronted with a situation where abilities that you think that you are bad at are required, what he's saying is that mental workspace suddenly becomes cluttered. It suddenly becomes all crazy because what we do to ourselves, and I know this because I throughout most of my life have told myself I'm not a creative person. So when I'm confronted with a task, where creativity is expected. And by creativity, I mean like artistic creativity, being able to make something look good or something to that effect. When I do that, my mind like literally shuts off. My mind, and I, I know that because I can feel it in that instance. My mind literally will like shut off or like I'll, my mind will start to get all like fuzzy and I'm like, man, I'm, I, I can't help you here because I'm not good, I'm not creative. So, by in so doing, in so thinking that, and and in so supporting that, like I'm literally limiting my own creativity because I'm telling myself that I'm not creative, and in the process, I'm shutting my mind off to being creative. So if you've ever told yourself that you're not good at math, or you're not good at reading, or you're not good at working with your hands, or you're not good at whatever other skill or ability, and you've been confronted with that, then you may know 
the feeling that I'm talking about. But you're actually holding back your abilities by, number one, believing that, and number two, supporting it. Because your brain, in, in that moment, your brain's shutting down the possibility. It's shutting down the potential for you to actually be able to do the thing and then be able to improve in the thing. Because you can improve in it. You can get better. You can be able to work with your hands better. You can be able to have better creativity if you engage in the action whenever you're confronted with it. So not shutting down those uh, potential spots where you can learn and grow is going to be very important, which leads us to the last part of this idea, the Pygmalion effect, the Pygmalion effect. So uh, for those of you who don't know the Pygmalion effect, it's primarily related in the school system. Uh, Essentially, it is that students' outcomes will be dictated by how the teacher treats them, and the teacher treats them based on the student's uh, level of what they perceive to be the student's level of smartness and engagement. So this is very pervasive in the school world. And we're humans, so that it's not, this isn't a wag your finger at, at teachers by any stretch. We're like, we're humans, and this is how we do things. And we are attracted to people who like things how we like them. And students, I'm sorry, teachers, Uh, like students who like to study and are smart and, you know, actually enjoy school and actually participate. So they tend to navigate to those students. What's happening at the same time whenever they're looking at other students and treating them in such a way that they're dumb and not able to be, you know, smarter in the subject, they're reinforcing that in the student. So this effect is very real, not only in the school system, but is very real in most workplaces as well. Uh, It's probably also very real in your family, uh, amongst your friends, amongst all of your relationships or most of your relationships. You tend to treat somebody based on how you perceive them to be. If you perceive them to be a dumber, slow-witted person, you tend to treat them as much, which supports that aspect of them. If you tend to believe that someone is smart, then you treat them as such, and that supports, in a positive way, I guess, that aspect of them. So it's worth thinking about how you think about yourself, first of all, but also how you are thinking about others and how your actions toward them are impacting their potential. Because we all impact every person we come in contact with, we impact them in some way, shape, or form, whether you believe it or not. And if you are around people regularly and you treat them as you uh, expect them to be, then they will continue to be more of that person. And that's just the way that it is. So it's up to you to decide to do that any differently. Which leads us to our last big idea. Think younger, live longer. Yet another idea that we have talked about numerous, numerous, numerous times. Aging. Aging. And how our beliefs about aging dictate our health span and our life span. And how our beliefs about aging have changed over time. Because over time, it used to be 
old people who wrote about being old. It used to be the people who were actually going through the experience who wrote about being old. But in the 1940s, the mid-1940s, right around the time when World War II was coming to an end, suddenly the medical establishment stepped in and decided that they were the authority on aging, and they saw people as they were more just people with medical histories than people with stories to tell. One way that David shows how our mindset impacts our current health outcomes is a study by Ellen Langer. This is a study that I've talked about in the past. In the study, Ellen recruited a handful of people around the age of 80, had them go into, basically bunkered them down for a couple of days in an environment where it looked like they were in the 50s. They made them talk like they were in the 50s. They made them act like they were that age in the fifth, the age they were in the 50s. Basically, they were in an environment that felt like the 50s, and they had them act as though they were uh, kind of living in that time as well. And they found that all of them had improved health outcomes after the fact, after just being in there for a couple of days. Some of most of them had less aches and pains. They were able to stand up upright a little better. They had better blood markers. Some of them walked in with canes and walked out without canes. So they had all of these health improvements. Literally what we think and how we feel about aging has an impact on not only our current health, but also our long-term health and how long we live. Um, it also has an impact on how our genes will affect us. So many of us believe that our genes are, are our destiny, but that is not the case. Uh, our genes impact about 7% of our actual longevity. In other words, how long we actually live. They impact about 10% of our risk of getting cancer. And then the average number for most of our health outcomes, it's like 10% that our genes actually impact us. So it's there, but it's minuscule. The other 90 to 93% we have an impact on. It's, it's our behaviors. So one of the genes that has been studied in this context is APOE4. APOE4 is a gene that is highly connected to Alzheimer's. We have two APOE genes. And if you have one APOE4 gene, I'm not going to give you any statistics, but your risk of Alzheimer's is increased. If you have two APOE4 genes, then it is substantially increased. How about that? I have one APOE4 gene and one APOE3 gene. So my risk of developing Alzheimer's, statistically speaking, is higher than the average person, and it is enough higher that I think about it. What they found in a particular study was that people with the APOE4 gene, if they had a negative mindset about health and about aging, they were more likely to develop dementia. Uh, what they said was, for them, the positive expectations of aging half their risk of developing dementia compared with people carrying the high-risk variant who assumed that aging came with a mental and physical decline. So the people who had positive beliefs about aging, thought that aging, they have control over it and that they can control the outcome of aging, that half their risk of developing dementia if they had the APOE4 gene. Whereas the other people who had more of a negative thought about aging, um, they were substantially higher risk of developing 
dementia um, if they had the ApoE4 gene. So our beliefs matter. Our beliefs matter. Uh, which leads me to the last bit of information about longevity so that I am not dragging this out uh, any further. And it is about the city of Nuro, uh, the province of Nuro, actually, N-U-R-N-U-O-R-O, the province of Nuro. This is in Italy, in Sardinia. The province of Nuro has about 200,000 residents. Of those 200,000, about 600 to 800 of them are centenarians. In other words, they are people who are over 100 years old, about 600 to 800 of them out of 200,000. That is absolutely phenomenal. That by capacity alone, that is 10 times more than the United States um, if you adjust for population size. So pretty incredible, pretty incredible. So in Nuro, of course, they have a much different style of living than we do. They are still farmers, so they're still very active. They are very social. There's not much technology. They eat very high-quality foods because they make, they raise, you know, the animals. They farm most of their foods, so they do all the work. Most of them are still working into their 70s and 80s. A lot of them are still working into their 90s. Farming. Farming, working. Not working at a computer, by the way. So all of that definitely has an impact on this. But another thing that they have seen is that because so many people in this province are over 100, are over 90, are over 80, people who live there see that and they believe that that is something that they can do. And if you look up neuro in um, the interwebs, what you'll find is a bunch of pictures on murals of people who are over 100 on walls. You'll find pictures of people over 100 in restaurants. They love the people there that are over 100. They think of them as strong. They think of them as resilient. They think of them as the kind of person that they want to be. They want to be 100 years old, and they want to be like that, and they want to be able to continue to farm, and they want to be able to continue to live. If you compare that to our society, if you compare that to Americanized society, it is not. It is the complete opposite. You do not see murals of people over 100. You see murals of 30-somethings that just sold their company for, you know, whatever, half a billion dollars. Like, that's all fun and well, but, like, if life is about fulfillment and health, like, that's not going to get you there. So what you believe, what you surround yourself with, what you think is possible will dictate your health outcomes and your longevity outcomes. And this is just one example of how being surrounded or being in an environment that supports the, quote, elderly, the older people, and believes them to be the bedrock of a community, how that will not only raise those people up, but will raise the whole society up and will increase the health span and lifespan of the whole society in general. So 
that's that. That is our 10 big ideas. Uh, go back and check out the last episode to get the first five. We have our second five here today. Thank you for spending this time with me. I know that it was a long ride, but I love reviewing these books. Make sure you check out The Expectation Effect by David Robson. Also, hit that subscribe button so that you can continue to get these Good Wolf Radio episodes. And until next time, here's to your success in health and fitness mastery.